How are y'all doing this evening? Good morning, buddy. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever applies to good wherever evening. you are. Good afternoon and good evening. Good day. Good day, mate. Good day. For those Australians who might be listening. Or Canadians. Buenos dias. <laughs> uh, we are going to be wrapping up our dispensation discussion. Try saying that four times. Dispensation that, that's a discussion. So we're going to be wrapping that up. This is part three of that. And last week we had an awesome time. We had some guests and just had a really good, you know, round the room uh, dialogue. And so I missed that, but we have Scott and we have Christy and we Woo! have me and we have everybody who's listening and we have the Holy Spirit. So with that. So it's 10 of us. <laughs> I'm not good at math. Let's uh, get started with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our question for the night. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us. I thank you for uh, Christy and Scott and our house church. And I pray, God, that you will bless us today as we study your word. Give me the words to say as I lead the discussion. And I pray, Lord, that you'll just uh, illuminate us and give us insight into the truth of your word. And I pray, God, for all those who are listening, that they'll be blessed by this podcast. And I pray you'll just use it to produce fruit. And I pray that you'll be with all of our unspoken burdens. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are going to talk this evening about progressive dispensationalism. So y'all who listen to the podcast, and Christy and Scott already know this, Sundays are more, in my mind, a time of devotion, a time of worship. And so when I'm teaching from the Bible, I try to make it more applicable and more personal. But on Wednesday nights, I like to get into some more theology. Yes, yeah, so a deep, yeah, deep stuff, deep theology. And so that necessarily involves jargon. You know, whenever someone hears the words progressive dispensationalism, automatically some people, their eyes glaze over. But for those of y'all who are listening <laughs> and you like theology, we're going to talk about theology today. So we're dispensationalists, and I want to go ahead and tell you in a very summarized way what a dispensationalist is. Like, are you a dispensationalist or are you not? I just have something funny to add here. Sure, you go see ahead. the Babylon B video with Kirk Cameron like Kirk Cameron's coming out with new Christian themed movies and the very last one he says is left behind for all millennialists where nothing <laughs> ever actually happens <laughs> I would I'm just I'm curious where he stands now like if I could just sit Kirk Cameron down and be like what, what do you think about it you know mm. because I know that he was obviously the poster boy for Left behind, behind theology, right? Yeah. And and now he swung the other way. You know, reformed all millennial. But we're going to talk about that today because I respect, I re, I respect my reformed brethren in a lot of ways. Obviously, I disagree with them on some important points. But um, a dispensationalist, in the simplest way possible to describe it, would be someone who sees a distinction between Israel and the church. And someone who believes that Israel still is part of God's plan. So if you, and my, I mean, there are other things you could say, you could add to that. There are other things that you could add to that definition, but I think that's probably the simplest definition in my mind. You see a difference between Israel and the church. You don't say that the church replaced Israel. You say that ethnic Israel, even though it is not believing today has not been cast off and God still, for some reason is waiting on Israel to repent. So a reformed amillennialist, they would find it uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for. They would find it very uncomfortable in their minds to affirm the idea that God still has ethnic Israel as his people even though they don't believe. Mm. Now, if Israel believed, all millennialists would have no problem saying, well, we love Israel. But because Israel as a whole does not believe, they think that the plan of God with Israel is contingent on their faith in Christ. And so whenever Christ came and they rejected Christ, well, in their minds, they think, okay, well, God's done with Israel. But the Israel's 
historically over and over and over again was not turned faithful. away from God over and over and over again. Yes, and that's a good point. I right? mean, that's a good rebuttal and to that. Still, yeah, that's a good rebuttal right. to the amillennial view that says that well, they rejected Jesus, so God's rejected them. Well, why not before? Because right. they, they had, rejected all the prophets. Yeah, they rejected the judges. I guess they would say. I think I've even heard it put this way. It was the last straw. You know, that was the last straw. Like God's done with them because of that. And while they would say hypothetically, yes, Israel could repent and God could still use the nation. Um, he's pretty much done with Israel distinctly as a people. And so they don't leave room for him to fulfill all of the promises that he made to ethnic Israel. Well, they spiritualize him as the thing. They would say that if you go back to the Old Testament, when Joshua conquered the land, when he led the people and they conquered the land, there's a verse in Joshua that says all of those things that were promised to Israel were fulfilled. Mm. And they'll take that to mean, well, God already fulfilled them all. And so therefore there's nothing left for him to do. So if God never restored Israel and God never gave them their land and, you know, Jesus never reigned on the throne in that more direct sense, like in Jerusalem, that God has already done everything that he said he's going to do. Now, I disagree with the way they in interpret that verse, but that's not something I prepared really to discuss tonight. The main thing that I wanted to point out was in discussing this with one of my amillennial friends, and I look forward to one day he suggested we sit down and have a cup of coffee, and I like coffee. Mm. And so one day I might sit down and talk with him. He's a really nice guy, a good Christian influence in the Christian community in LJ and a lot of people know him, mm -hmm. but anyways, and talking with him, he just doesn't think that being born ethnically into Israel was really that significant. He would say that the idea of being born into Israel and being circumcised is parallel to uh, being born into the Christian covenant family. And he uses this honestly as an argument for infant baptism. And he would say that mm -hmm. really whenever they were born and circumcised, they were hopefully going to grow up and be believers. Okay. And uh, they encouraged that and they, they set the child on that path and they kind of assumed it, you know, that's why they circumcised them, even though they hadn't made a choice yet. Um, he would say that being a part of God's people, really being part of the covenant is something that you, you choose through repentance. And mm -hmm. so um, they would argue that people were never really part of Israel, God's covenant people, just by their ethnic connection to Abraham. And while in the New Testament, there are statements that seem to suggest that on the surface, uh, there are also evidences that God has a plan for Israel, even though they've rejected, even though they have not repented towards God. So I want to read a verse that in my mind, I think that it's insurmountable um, and it's in Romans. It's in that key passage, I think, that this debate centers on. All of Israel being saved. Yeah, absolutely. And so in Romans 11, I don't have a highlight. It's just going to take me a second to find it. But it talks about how the Israelites are beloved for the Father's sake. So if y'all find it before I do, just go ahead and read it out loud. But it's going to take me a second to find it. Uh, okay. okay. Those of y'all who are listening, y'all like, man, this guy's like not on top of it. Like What's going on with this guy? Twenty-five, maybe. Is that twenty-five? No, that's not twenty-five. Okay, it's verse twenty-eight. Praise the Lord, I found it. As concerning the gospel, they who are they? The Jews. The Jews who have rejected Jesus. They are enemies for your sake. So these are not believing Jews. But as touching the election, they, the same enemies of the gospel, are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That, to me, that is a clear statement, as clear as can be, that the enemies of the gospel, the Jewish people, they are still in some way beloved, not because they believed in Jesus, but for the sake of the Father's. So God made a covenant Absolutely. with Abraham mm -hmm. that 
his ethnic offspring would be blessed with certain earthly privileges. Now that doesn't mean that they would be automatically part of, mm. you know, the, the body of Christ or automatically saved just because they're Jewish. Like John refutes that idea, but they, they did find themselves because of their ethnicity in a position to receive a lot of privilege. Even if they took it for granted, they have a lot of privilege simply by virtue of the fact that they're Jewish. I mean, when we look at the Jewish people, I know they've experienced persecution more than any other ethnic group in the history of the world, but they've also been preserved, culturally speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have remained separate, yep. while a lot of other cultures have just kind of amalgated and, and mixed in with other cultures around them, and they disappeared. Um, but it, mean, They were circumcised, so they would be also identified as being separate. So they've been, they've been kept separate. Um, they have been blessed with land like yeah. God against all the odds. God gave them back their land. They're there right. today. They have a lot of security mm-hmm. despite the fact that everybody in the world hates them. Yeah. And so these are privileges that other nations don't enjoy. I mean, America doesn't have a promise that we are going to be preserved by God, even mm-hmm. if we don't mm-hmm. repent. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, there is a, a Jeremiah 18 passage that if we repent as a nation, then God he will bless us. Yeah. Okay. So that is something God promises nations even outside of Israel, but Israel's promise they'll be preserved by God and not wiped out even if they don't repent. Mm-hmm. So that means that there is some way in which Israel stands in a position of privilege just because they are ethnically descendants of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what I think reform people that just can't get behind. And I've talked about this in the past. So this may just be review for those who are listening this is of course a type of God's grace. And so Israel representing the bride, no matter how much the bride commits spiritual adultery, we see how God kept bringing back Israel, you know, uh, just like the story of Hosea and Gomer. Right. And so we see them represent really us, the church, the church is not worthy. The churches, as we see in revelation, I mean, look at all the problems in those churches. It gets worse as you continue to read Pergamum and Thyatira and all the things that they did and all the things that we're doing today in the Laodicean age, but we've not been cast off by God. We have that eternal security by the blood of Christ and Israel. They, as an ethnic group, not individually, but as an ethnic group, they're eternally secure too. Again, as an ethnic group pertaining to their preservation as a nation, um, they're preserved by God's grace, Mm -hmm. not because they deserve it. And so for reformed people who are listening, who believe in, you know, by grace through faith, we are saved. You know, that's the battle cry of the reformation. Then I think that you should get on board with dispensationalism for that same reason, because Israel demonstrates in its preservation by God, God's grace through faith. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course we got to think whose faith again, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. So whose faith, Abraham's faith, mm-hmm. Isaac's faith, Jacob's faith. Like mm-hmm. even though these people have not appropriated that for themselves and if they would, what would happen? They'd be saved. You know, they'd mm-hmm. be part of the body of Christ, but again, ethnically, corporately as a nation, uh, they're preserved by the grace of God. All right. So anyways, that's dispensationalism. So now we know what the barest definition is. There are different kinds of dispensationalism and it gets really confusing. It's kind of nerdy. You know, I'm part of a dispensationalist group and they had this little, um, they had this little discussion. A poll was taken. Like what dispensationalist are you? Are you progressive? Are you uh, mid acts? Are you revised? Are you classic? And surprisingly, there are lots of variations. Honestly, I don't like getting boxed in to one because I honestly don't think I agree with every single variation on every single thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that they all necessarily uh, are the only options that we have available to us. But I did want to explain progressive dispensationalism because it's become controversy in, you know, dispensational circles, the debate surrounding it. And I want to talk about its key features. So what is progressive dispensationalism? What makes it unique? Well, number one, the kingdom of God is the unifying theme of the Bible. I think I can get on board with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not just talking about the physical kingdom, right? I mean, when they mean kingdom, they mean redemption brings us into the family of God and the family of God looks forward to 
you know, be in part of God's kingdom. We have that citizenship. So I can agree with that. And they would say the kingdom again, isn't just purely spiritual, like covenant theology would say, like the kingdom is now they'd say, no, no, no. The kingdom is like, you know, a political social entity as well that will be physically manifested in the future. So I can agree with that. Uh, Two, there are four dispensations. This is what I disagree with them on, but I I don't want to stop right here. I'm going to go through all the features and then we'll go back to it. They think that there are four dispensations and they would call them patriarchal, mosaic, ecclesial, and Zionic. And so I think that they're taking the seven classic dispensations and they're trying to make it smoother and less confusing. And so they, they take those seven, turn them into four. I think they've made a mistake in doing so. But anyways, moving on. Three, Christ is currently on David's throne. I disagree with them on that. Now, they wouldn't deny that there is an earthly aspect to David's throne. They wouldn't deny that Christ will one day reign on a actual throne in Jerusalem. They wouldn't deny any of that. But they would say in some sense he's reigning on David's throne now. And I disagree with that. Number four, they would say the new covenant is currently being enjoyed by believers to some extent. And I agree with that, too. Yeah. I'm surprised that they're actually dispensationalists who deny that. That shocked me. I was like, whoa, now that's kind of crazy. Like you read the new Testament and you came away with the idea that we're not experiencing Mm -hmm. the new covenant. I don't see how you can do that. Uh, Some would say, well, you know, it's because the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, it's for Israel and Israel has not been revived. The Valley of dry bones, you know, they haven't come together and, you know, received life in every sense. I mean, they're in the land, but they haven't, they, they would, yes, it's, it's associated with it. If you look at the, yeah, if you, and if you look at Jeremiah 31, the new covenant involves writing the law of God on the hearts of the Jewish people. So they, so they would say, if you're being strictly literal and that's what dispensationalists are about. And I can agree with that too, you know, read scripture, literally, they would say the new covenant can't be in effect yet because the Jewish people haven't been revived yet. Well, again, that doesn't mean that the new covenant blessings can't be enjoyed to some extent. I mean, it's like salvation. We haven't experienced salvation in the fullest sense, right? I mean, one day we're going to be redeemed in our body. Does that mean that we're not saved now? No, no we're saved now. Yeah. So but we're it, also being saved. Yeah, we're being saved. So and that we will be saved. Yes, absolutely. So that to say, well, the new covenant involves the Jews repenting. And that hasn't happened yet. So the new covenant is not in effect now. I just don't think that logically follows. Um, The fifth thing is they say the church and Israel are not completely distinct. Now, I would agree once I explain what they're saying. I think that they're right. Um, Dispensationalists have a tendency of really sharply dividing the church in Israel. And I'm going to give you two examples. And I think you'll agree with me once you hear them that those authors are taking things too far. Uh, But anyways, we'll get back to that. Number six, they would say the New Testament expands the Old Testament promises to Israel without denying their original intent. So they would say uh, New Covenant, for example, going back to Jeremiah. So when God wrote about the New Covenant to Israel, it did involve the kingdom coming. It did involve them reigning over the nations. It did involve them, you know teaching the law to the Gentiles and the millennium, all this other stuff. But in the new Testament, the authors under the inspiration of the Holy spirit, they are expanding this and saying, okay, you didn't know this then. So when y'all read Jeremiah 31 back in the day, you didn't get this then. But what, what we're doing now is explaining to you that there's a mysterious aspect to what was written then that we're now explaining to you. Mm. So, The New Testament expands upon the Old Testament. It doesn't deny the original promises, just expands upon it. And I think that is where amillennialists will go wrong. They will say, well, this in the Old Testament is all spiritual. So they'll see something that is written to Israel and that has a literal fulfillment in the millennium. And they'll say, no, this is spiritual. And they'll they'll spiritualize it and they'll make it mean something now, like something that Christians enjoy now when no, it's talking about the ethnic Jewish people in the millennium. Okay. But a progressive dispensationalist will say, yeah, it's true that the new covenant pertains to the Jews in the millennium. Yes, absolutely. And they're going to reign in the millennium, but 
There's another side to this that pertains to the church. And the church is a spiritual body of believers. So the again, progressive dispensationalists uh, are accused by the classic dispensationalists of sometimes spiritualizing too much. Um, but I think that they, they have a point. Progressives will say there is a initial fulfillment based on the original intent of these old Testament promises. But then there is another layer to that prophecy that pertains to the church. So let me give you an example. When God, when God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, he promised that Abraham would have land. Okay. Progressive dispensationalists will point out that this is fulfilled in two ways. One, it's fulfilled with Israel getting their land. Mm. They don't have it all right now. They'll get it all in the millennium. It's going to stretch from the river of Egypt, as it says, to the Euphrates. I mean, they don't have all that now, but they will. So they'd say that's true. That's what they would have read back then. They would have got that and only that. However, in the New Testament, especially Paul seems to make it clear that the Abrahamic covenant goes beyond ethnic Israel. And those who are in the church are heirs according to the same promise. So they would argue that, yes, the land promise pertains to Israel in the millennium, but believers in Christ will inherit the earth. And so we have a land promise too. We are promised to have the earth. The new heaven, the new earth is given to us. And so just as God had a chosen land for his chosen Israel, he will have a chosen land for his chosen church. So they would say there's layers there. They would say that you have the ethnic descendants of Israelites, or uh, sorry, the ethnic descendants of Abraham who have earthly privileges. But then you have the spiritual offspring of Abraham that have spiritual privileges. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So an amillennialist would differ with that. They would say, no, they would say the Abrahamic covenant is a spiritual covenant. Like um, they, they would say that Abraham's offspring, if they don't repent and believe in Jesus, they are not God's people in any sense. Um, They would say that Israel is not God's chosen people, even though they are ethnically descendant of Abraham. A progressive dispensationalist would say, no, the people of Israel are God's people still. And they will one day receive many earthly privileges. But uh, there is another people of God that is also part of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm going to read to you a verse that um, goes right along with this. Sheep from the, a different fold. Um, you could look at it that way, I suppose. But um, in Galatians 6, 16, Paul says, As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God, the Israel of God. What's the Israel of God? Some people say those are like Messianic Jews. You know, they're Israelites ethnically, but they're also believers in Jesus. And other people would say, well, no, the Israel of God refers to heavenly Israel and heavenly Israel is the church. Uh, Going along with this in Galatians three, Paul talks about the new Jerusalem. This is another way you can illustrate this. Okay, let me find, it may actually be in chapter four. Okay, let's see. Verse 26 of Galatians four. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is mother of us all. And so Israel of God, Jerusalem, which is above. Paul seems to be saying there are two aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. There's the earthly, which pertains to Jews. And then there's the heavenly, which pertains to the church, but they're all connected in the Abrahamic covenant. There's an earthly side. There's a heavenly side. So that means whenever we read about like the chosen capital, Jerusalem, 
Okay, the chosen capital Jerusalem has been the center for the Jewish people ethnically. And one day their chosen land is going to be based around Jerusalem. Right. But there's another Jerusalem, which is in heaven. Right. And this Jerusalem is what you might consider the original. Right. That you would say that the earthly Jerusalem only points to this one. Okay. Yes. It's a shadow of it, a type of it. And so eventually. That's the new Jerusalem. Yes. The new Jerusalem. And so eventually it's not going to be about ethnic association with Abraham. Whenever we get to the new heaven and the new earth, it's not going to be like, okay, the new Jerusalem is the particular inheritance of the Israelites ethnically. And the Gentile Christians are just kind of on the outside. They're the nations, right? And they have access to the new Jerusalem. They can go up to it, you know, but it's the particular inheritance of the ethnic Jewish people. That's what a number of dispensationalists have taught. And um, it would make many amillennialists uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the reasons why they, they won't believe in dispensationalism because they think that, well, it kind of makes the church second rate. You know, God according to dispensationalism has this plan for Israel and it seems so prominent and so important in, in our eschatology that it's like, where's the church really? You know, if the earth is being, where we should be, well, they, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, I'm like, I don't see, I can't, I get what they're saying that they're kind of second rate, but it's not because we've been adopted in. Yes. But By the I, time I, it all pans out, we're going to be equal. Right. Yes. And so that's, that's what I think progressive dispensationalists are trying to say, but not all normal, let's say normal classic dispensationalists would agree with that. For example, I'm going to read you something by Henry Morris. I love Henry Morris. He's one of my favorite writers, but he said something that I, I can remember when I first read, it. I was like, huh, I don't know about that, but I highlighted it and I'm going to read it to you in his book, God and the nations. He says the nation Israel, on the other hand, as God's chosen nation, will occupy a separate position, presumably dwelling only in the New Jerusalem. This implies, or this seems implied by Revelation 21.12, which notes that the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel are inscribed on the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem. Israel's king, of course, will be their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Okay, now, about the 12 disciples names they're all right, it doesn't that. mention them but he mentions them later in the book right but here he's emphasizing that the nation of israel will dwell in the new jerusalem which is huge obviously and the nations the gentile nations that are saved will come up to the new jerusalem but the new jerusalem will be in effect the property of ethnic jews who are redeemed so what this seems to do, and this is why I think it's problematic and why I disagree with this view. Paul says that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. He says Greek, but you know, yeah. Greek Gentile, right? Yeah, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile. So what he's saying that in the body of Christ, there is no advantage to being an ethnic Jew. There is no advantage. There's no spiritual advantage. Okay, now, now we could say that, of course, being a Jew might put you into contact with the Old Testament and that could point you to Christ. Yes. Okay. But being a Jew does not, if you put a Jew and a Gentile next to each other and they're both redeemed and they're both believers in Jesus, the Jew does not have some position of prominence over the Gentile. Right. Okay. In Christ, we are equal. Yes. Okay. So when you think about the eternal state the new heaven and the new earth to have Israel dwelling in the new Jerusalem and it being seen as sort of like theirs while everybody else, they get to come up to it. They're permitted to come up into it. Right. And they, they have access to it, but it's not really their inheritance. It's really Israel's inheritance. I don't know if that's how Henry Morris would say it if he was here today, but it's, it sort of seems implied in his words, that idea, um, that is what amillennialists don't like. And I can agree with them when it comes to that, because when we look at the New Testament, is the church like this side plan that, mm -hmm. that God has, or is it really the culmination of everything God's been planning? Mm -hmm. And 
that's why um, we have to be really careful that when we as dispensationalists, when we're drawing a distinction between Israel and the church, which we should, we need to be careful we don't take it too far. Because some people do. Think about John Hagee. Yes. Okay. Think about John Hagee. What he said. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he, he's a dispensationalist. Yes. And he takes it way too far. Way too he's far. basically said that the Jews and Gentile Christians who are part of the church are on the same playing field, like the mm. same level. And they would say, or he would say, and I could hardly believe that he said this, but he has said this and articles have been written about it and all kinds of stuff caused some controversy when he first made the statement. He thinks that if the Jews follow the law of Moses, they don't need Jesus. then they don't need Jesus. But everybody else that's Gentile. That's right. So like if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, if you're a part of a Gentile nation or culture and you, um, and you need to be saved as we all do, you have to do it through Jesus, but the Jews don't need to believe in Jesus. But they can't follow the Mosaic law. That's right. And so I don't know where he gets this idea from, but it, it is something that he didn't come up with. There are other people who have thought this too. Um, back in the 1800s when people first started taking dispensationalism and applying it to the mission field, uh, there were some disputes among people. Like, should the Jews um, keep the law? Like, are they bound? Like the Mosaic law. Like, let's say a Jew gets saved and believes in Jesus. Should they continue keeping the law? There were some people that said, no, they don't have to. If they want to, they can. But there were others that said, no, no, they need to because they're God's chosen people. They need to keep the law. And so, again, this is the product of dispensationalists taking things too far. Yeah. And uh, and so Henry Morris, obviously, that's a tame example. You know, I, honestly, if he's right, let's say the New Jerusalem is for the Jews and I only get to visit. OK, I'm just going to be happy to be there, y'all. OK, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I can't say that uh, what he's saying is is really all too bad if I'm just going to be there, right? If I'm going to be in that new creation. But I, I do think that it, what he said doesn't quite line up with what Paul says about in Christ, there being an equality between Jew and Gentile and progressive dispensationalists. They have noticed this tendency among some others. And that's why they say that when we talk about dispensations, we need to understand that the church is not some parentheses, not some side plan. But the church is bringing things forward. So 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to take a break from this whole Israel plan. Mm. Okay. It was God moving things forward. And it's not like, okay, you got two completely parallel ideas. You got the church over here and Israel over here and one's earthly and one's heavenly. And they're so separate that they almost don't touch each other. No, they should have been murdered. Okay. So the idea is that God, he starts with Israel. Okay. Israel is a type of redemption. Okay. Even in the old Testament, there were people who believed and uh, they were part of what would one day be the church. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the Holy spirit hadn't been given Pentecost hadn't happened. You know, yes, things had to be done, but I mean, Abraham, he's part of the church today. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, all Jews who ever believed in Jesus before he died on the cross, they're all part of the church today. So keeping things that separate where you got, okay, got these over here and these over here. Um, I think it's just, it's bad theology. And again, it diminishes the importance of what Jesus did. Jesus is bringing together Mm. Jews and Gentiles. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians. He broke down that wall of separation, that enmity between us. So when we get to the new heaven and new earth, what do we have? We don't have Israel as the people of God, the chosen people, and then all the nations, you know, all the, those Mm. people who are just allowed to be there. We have in revelation 21, it mentions we have the, peoples revelation 21 3 we have the peoples of god so now israel doesn't have some advantage over the other nations in the eternal state in the eternal state that's what i'm talking about now in the millennium yes Yes. israel has prominence yes Mm -hmm. okay israel will rule over the nations so in progressives are, are apt to point that out. They will say that, yes, Israel will have a special prominence in the millennium. But when everything is brought to a close, when we see the bride depicted along with the new Jerusalem in those last chapters of Revelation, who is the bride? Mm -hmm. It's every believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, whatever. You're part of the same body. Mm -hmm. 
and there's no separation anymore. And it's not about earthly Jerusalem anymore. It's about the heavenly one. It's not about Canaan anymore. It's about the new earth. Like these things that were types, Mm. they culminate and they are fulfilled in the eternal state. And so I think maybe if reformed people saw that, they would, they would recognize, um, the truth of it. Um, and again, there, there are some reformed people who I think don't understand dispensationalism and the same can be said about dispensationalists. They may not you know, understand the other side, you know, everybody's in their corner and you know, there's this debate's been going on for a long time, but, um, I think that, <laughs> um, progressive dispensationalism does a good job of kind of reaching out that hand to that community and saying, look, you, you got a point. Mm. Okay. You do got a point when reformers go to Galatians and they say, Hey, it looks like that. It's not really about ethnic Israel. It looks like it's about the church. Mm. It's like, you got a point. I can't, I can't deny that. But does that mean that just because the church is more important, does Mm. that mean that God is done with Israel? Mm. No. Right. And that's why Romans 11, it's like, that's the key passage in my mind. That's what convinced me when I was wrestling with these ideas in college. It's like, how do what's one, one key, clear, 100% crystal clear passage that says ethnic Israel is still part of God's plan, even though they don't believe in Jesus Romans 11, and Romans 11. 11's it. Yeah. So that means, you know, the progressive dispensationalist view is able to balance both those ideas over here. The church is the the be all end all like that's the crowning glory of God's redemption purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, God's not done with Israel because what is Israel meant to illustrate grace? Mm-hmm. God's showing that grace. Now he's demonstrating in a big way. He's guarding his people. He is putting up patiently with these people. And uh, one day after they are repentant and after they experience a revival, they are going to reign. Abraham was promised because of his faith and offering up his son, Isaac, he was promised not just that his descendants would be preserved, but he was promised that all the nations would come to Israel for favor. Like Mm -hmm. that obedience. It wasn't the simple faith that he had in Genesis 15, Mm. like this offering up his son, that kind of faith. Okay. That faith with works. Okay. That faith uh, led to a special promise to Abraham. And that promise was his descendants will reign over all the other nations. So Abraham has to have that given to him one day. He has to be there to see it happen. Mm -hmm. He has to see his physical offspring reigning over the nations or else the promise of God is, is null and void. But, um, I think that that is all going to be fulfilled in the thousand year reign of Christ. And I think after that, in the, the new heaven, new earth, the eternal state, uh, it's all going to be about the bride, about the body. Um, but again, there are some dispensationalists who disagree with me on that. And again, I, I respect them, but, um, and they would probably accuse me. Some of them might be listening to this might say, well, you kind of sounded like a, you know, a reformer or an amillennialist. Well, I can assure you that I disagree with reformed theology in a number of ways, but, um, I, I think that we should all be humble and recognize that, you know, reform people, I don't have to agree with them on everything to admit that, Hey, they're right on this or that. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know? And, uh, that's why I liked having that dialogue with my friend on Facebook because it was like, okay, we we're willing to listen to each other. And he right. was willing to say, you know, I, I can kind of see that, you know, but I'd like you to, you kind of try to see things my way. And, and so I think that that sort of dialogue is, I mean, is, he was wrong, but you could, well, see I mean, and, and it's, yeah, it's like, I think you're <laughs> I wrong, joking, but, yeah. but I think that you have a point, but let me show you how my particular view on the matter mm. is able to biblically balance these ideas, right. you know, of Israel and the church. Um, so anyways, um, the seventh one, I didn't mention the seventh feature of progressive dispensationalism. It's a uh, holistic redemption encompasses all people in all areas of human life. So uh, really a big part of that is they would argue that whenever God brings his kingdom in, in the eternal state, there's going to be cultures there. There's going to be nations with those cultural distinctions. And God's redemption is not just saving us from our sins. God's redemption is uh, restoring his perfect world back to the pristine state that it was in the garden of Eden. And, and I think that's beautiful. Like, I mean, the idea that uh, God is bigger than Jewishness Mm. that in and of itself, which to me should seem so simple. 
is something that I think a lot of people in the church need to realize today. You don't need to become Jewish to be saved. Right. And uh, when we get to the new heaven, the new earth, will we ever forget what God has done with the Jews and the Israelites? Never. Like, I mean, it says the gates are going to have on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll never forget what God's done. And Jesus will always be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the offspring of King David. That will never change. But uh, you don't, I mean, he could have done that through any nation. You know, it's not like God is Jewish. It's all, it's almost like some people, the the way they talk, it's like God is Jewish. He's, he's the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Jews. That's right. But he's also the God of every other people group that's willing to receive the gospel. And so when we get to the new heaven, the new earth, there is that holistic redemption of, you know, cultures and ethnicities being present and uh, being on equal footing in the church and the body. Um, The main contribution I would say of progressive dispensationalism is this. They don't go too far in rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, when you're dividing up scripture and trying to understand how things fit together, I think that their contribution is they don't go too far. Sometimes dispensationalists go too far. I gave you an example of Henry Morris. Mm -hmm. I gave you the example of John Hagee. They would also go too far. I think in saying that the new covenant has no application for the church. There are some dispensationalists that have actually said that they would say there's actually two new covenants. Show me in the Bible where it says there are two new covenants. I just, I don't know where that is. (laughs) I've not seen it and I've read the Bible a lot. So the idea that there are two new covenants separating the new covenant into two different components. um, I think that that is uh, based on them too sharply separating Israel and the church. Um, They also, I think have something to contribute when it comes to uh, David. Okay. The covenant that God made with David. So it's true that the covenant with David um, has an eternal aspect to it. So let me explain that. Theocratic Israel, with David as king, harkens back to a time when God told Adam and Eve, I give you dominion. So who is the king of kings? God. He's always yeah. been the king of kings. But he gave dominion. He gave theocratic rule. He delegated that rule mm-hmm. to Adam and Eve. Right Now, obviously, that was lost. We see a taste of it when God sets up his kingdom in Israel right? and he's ruling from the temple, okay, or from the tabernacle and he's speaking through his prophets and he sets up a king and that king is David. So the Bible basically through the covenant that God made with David is reminding us that one day all believers to some extent will reign with Christ in the millennium will reign with the church will reign with Christ in the millennium, but in the eternal state, um, all of the redeemed will reign with Christ. Um, some more actively than others, but will all reign with them. And so I think the Davidic covenant does have a heavenly side to it, right? I mean, um, the way I described it, I'm going to just go ahead and read to you what I said, because I think I, I stated it well enough when I wrote it down earlier. Um, the church age is certainly progress. Okay, so like before, we talked about how some people think the church age is just a parenthesis. It is progress. But rather than having now the contradiction of a heavenly Christ sitting on David's earthly throne, we have the exalted son of David sitting on a heavenly throne. So progressive dispensationalists would say that right now, Christ is on David's throne. That's contradiction because Christ is in heaven. And David's throne is an earthly one. Okay. So that doesn't make sense biblically, but um, they're right about the fact that there is a connection between Jesus being the offspring of David and um, his heavenly throne. Um, I think that whenever in the very beginning, God gave Adam and Eve dominion, when he did that, they were fulfilling the image of God. They were made in God's image. Um, Specifically, they were made after the image of the Son. They were made after the image of Jesus. And Paul talks about that in Colossians. He is the image in Colossians 1.15. And because he is the Son and the heir of all things, 
um, he rules over all things because he made all things. And when he created Adam and Eve, they were patterned after the sun. Yes. They were patterned after Jesus. Yes. And so Jesus sitting on his throne right now at the right hand of the father, we, when we finally rule one day with Christ on the earth, we're patterned after that. Yes. We're patterned after Christ's dominion. Let us, let us make man in our image. Yes. And, um, when it says image, it has particular significance because Jesus is the image. Yeah. And so again, this whole idea of the covenant with David and reigning and ruling, I think that it does have a heavenly aspect mm-hmm. because again, that heavenly throne that Christ sits on right now, David's throne's based on that. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of man being able to reign at all right. with authority delegated from God, that's based on the fact that we were made after Christ's image and Christ is the heir of all creation. And in him, we also are heirs and children. Right. And so I think that they're right in saying, ooh, there is some heavenly spiritual relationship between Christians reigning and David's throne. I think that there's a relationship. Right. But they're wrong in saying that David uh, or that uh, the son of David, Jesus, is reigning on that throne right now. Right. So I would say that Jesus, he paved the way to David's throne. But uh, he hasn't come down from heaven and actually done that done yet. That. Yeah. So I think that they're, they're close, but I think they take things a little too far. And I guess that's what I would say their shortcoming is their shortcoming and their contribution sort of, <laughs> uh, our intention, their contribution is that they don't go too far in certain ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to distinguishing between Israel and the church, but their shortcoming is sometimes, uh, <laughs> they don't divide the word enough. <laughs> uh, when it comes to David's throne, I think that they, they just kind of take the eternal throne of Christ and the throne of David and they just kind of mix them all in there, yeah. you know, and I think they don't go far enough there. And I think that they also don't go far enough with those dispensations, the four of them, you know, the four of them, uh, I'll mention them real quick, like, uh, the patriarchal, the mosaic, the ecclesial and the Zionic those four different dispensations. They would say the patriarchal one, you know, that's with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right. uh, mosaics with Moses and the law ecclesials. Now that's the church age and Zionic would be the millennium and the kingdom, which becomes eternal. Uh, that takes a lot of distinctions that scripture talks about, and it just kind of puts them all together yeah. and removes it. It, it removes too many distinctions. Yeah. So I would say like, okay, Genesis. Yes. There's, there's a patriarchal dispensation there when God's he's dealing with Abraham, he's made a covenant with Abraham and all that stuff. But at the same time, what about Eden? What about right. God's covenant with before sin? Right. What about God's covenant immediately after sin? What about God's covenant with Nova Noah after the flood? Like those are dispensational changes that are huge, very important. Right. Um, and the Zionic one, there's a big difference between the millennium and the eternal state. I mean, the Bible makes that distinction. So again, I think that they, in an attempt to make things smoother, they're trying to make a smoother transition, you know, a a progress of redemption. You know, when you're looking through the Bible, you could just see like, okay, it's step by step by step by step. But I don't think that it can be construed that way all the time. I think rather it's more of an overlap sometimes like in the millennium. I think there's an overlap. I think, yeah, where are we during that time? Are we reigning? Yeah, we're reigning. Yeah. And we're we're not going to wait till the eternal state to reign. We're going to be reigning as soon as the millennium gets set up. But what about all these other people running around in natural bodies? Like, is that going to happen forever? No. No. Thousand years. That's right. So there's, there's this overlap between God's got an earthly people called Israel. They're reigning on the earth over Gentile nations. They're all in natural bodies. Mm. But at the same time, you have the church already reigning over them. Mm. In their glorified bodies, just like right. in the eternal state. Right. So you have these two things that run side by side with each mm-hmm. other. So I think that uh, progressive dispensationalism is on the right track. So if you think about it, the we will be reigning over the Jews that make it through the millennium. That yes. Make and it make it through the tribulation. When, when we say we... I, I'm I, talking about the church. Yes, I would say and that... I mean, 
all of the church. Yeah, in a general sense, yes. Yeah. I mean, we will have a position of authority over, over. everybody in natural bodies, including yes. the Jews. Um, I think that the people who have particular um, authority over the Jews would be perhaps uh, the disciples on the 12 thrones because they're going to have glorified bodies. Yes. And so they're going to have authority over Israel. But then within Israel, within that natural bodied group, you're going to have priests. You're going to have a physical yes. descendant of David. Yeah. Um, and so it's like you got, just like today, you have kings ruling over their subjects. But above the kings, you have the angels who are working behind the then scenes. Then you have the king of kings. And then you have the king of kings. So in a similar way, in the millennium, you're going to have, uh, <laughs> hate to put them on the bottom, but you got the nations. Right. And then you got the Gentile nations. And then you got Israel on top of yeah. them. And then above them, you have the church. Right. And then above the church, you have the eternal God that we worship, yes. you know? And so it's, it's where a bizarre time. Fit in after that? Where do they fit in? I don't know where you know they, I, mean? I don't know how they fit in during the millennium. Exactly. I know that in the eternal state, they're servants. I mean, it mentions them, you know, basically as gatekeepers in revelation in the uh, new Jerusalem. Um, they'll be servants in the household. And will be the heirs of the household, the sons and daughters that have possession of the mansion, mm. so to speak. Uh, exactly what they do, I have no idea. Mm. Um, like I've heard people say, like, I'd be happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. You know, that's what David said. Right. So if I was an angel and that's the position that I held, I'd just be happy to be there. Right. And uh, and so it is an interesting thought about them because they do have a position over us now. Um they're sort of like the old butlers that are that's taking, exactly they're, they're taking care of the young kids that haven't yes. achieved their inheritance. I think that's a perfect analogy. Yeah. And I think that's one scripture employs. So they're the old butlers like right. Alfred raising Batman. That's right. Yeah. So that's not the one I was thinking of, but well, okay, I think I'll that's a good that one, one, you know, yeah, it's not a bad one. So anyways, I mean, they're in charge. Right. I mean, they have authority that we don't have. They're moving right. nations according to God's will. Was that TV show? The Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. Yeah. That's another one. I use that analogy when I'm teaching students about the angels. I'm like, guys, they're, they're in the house, right? They're beloved by God. They're yeah. taken care of. And, uh, the obedient ones enjoy their position, mm. but they're happy to serve. And that's a mentality that I think Americans, we have a hard time understanding. If you have, you know, that old British mentality, like mm. I know my place. I'm a servant in the house, but I'm happy yeah. to be a servant and it's honorable and it's a privilege. Um, that's something that I think comes more naturally to them when they read the Bible. But for us Americans, it's all about, you know, what about me? We're all on the same. Don't you're not better than me. And you know, that's, yeah. we're all on the same. You're not a king right up there, man. I tell you what, <laughs> I got my rights. <laughs> I got my rights. Or and, my gun. And my yeah. gun too. And so anyways, uh, all right, um, Scott, do you have any questions? No, I'm just like, keep looking over at Christy, who uh, we lost. All right, well, um, you I'm know, sorry, so it's okay. It's I mean, fine. it's all good. But he was lulling me to sleep. I know, it's that voice, right? I was listening. Hey, you were, it was, it's like osmosis. You, know, was, you just sit there and it all goes in, you know. She was you listening, know. even through the snores. Through the snores. The snores, that was meditating. Yeah. It's deep breathing, Scott. Yeah, what are you talking sure. about, man? <laughs> Sorry, I've been hanging out with Jeff Johnson too much. <laughs> well, anyways, hopefully some of that made sense. I know it's deep stuff, intricate stuff, but hopefully you got something out of it. God bless you, and hopefully you'll come back.